Welcome to the Smoke Pit. We have a great episode for you today. Here in the Smoke Pit, we endeavor to find unique stories, and we are lucky enough that our very own Stu, the Graybeard veteran, shared an exclusive interview with two former contractors who risked their lives in Afghanistan to deliver mail to the troops fighting on the front lines. This episode, entitled Postcards Through Hell, is a unique perspective of an aspect of the war that many of us took for granted. Barring any saved rounds, Enjoy this episode with Stu, the Greybeard Veteran. Well, hello, folks. Welcome back to another episode of the Smoke Pit. I'm Stu, the Greybeard Veteran. I'm joined today with two special guests. One is a, a prior Marine, retired, and that we served with the Second Force uh, Recon together. And then Al, who's a prior Navy, also uh, obviously still in the firefighting, paramedic, and all that other stuff. So he's the guru of medicine. That's what I call him, Doc Chase. So, Ed, give us kind of a breakdown of, you know, who you are, where you come from, what makes you at Fort? Retired Recon Marine, you know that. We worked together in uh, Second Force back in the 90s. You know, retired in 04, rolled right into contracting right away. Funny story, a mutual friend of ours, Chris Boyd. Yeah. He's one. He was working for Crucible at the time. He uh, went ahead and sent out a mass email, saying, "Hey, if you wanna, if you're getting out, you wanna do this kind of work, make this kind of money, work with these kind of guys, send me your resume." And that opened the door for me for uh, contracting. Start off with uh, in Kabul, Afghanistan at WPPS, Worldwide uh, Personal Protective Services. Pretty much, we we're escorting the uh, embassy personnel around the country. Worked for Crucible, and after Crucible, I uh, ended up working for SOC. And with SOC, I've got onto the mobile teams. And uh, yeah, I was able to take all that experience from prior contracting and uh, no, to uh, SOC. And once again, just when you think you know it all, boom, the learning curve goes way up. <laughs> so then we have Al, they called Doc Chase. So Al, come and give us your background. And the former Navy corpsman uh, got out and way long time ago in 81 and i've been a paramedic uh, on the civilian side for a little bit over 40 years um firefighter paramedic with uh, community fire rescue in houston i met ed in in iraq in 2005 uh, he was uh, one of the trainers for crucible uh, and then I, didn't crucible come on board for dine corps as an independent training group uh, uh yeah they were they were the trainers for dine corps and then later on they were they Dine Corps absorbed all of the uh, uh, Crucible trainers, but most of them last that long under <laughs> Dine. Yeah. Uh, it he he pretty much uh, taught me everything I know, and uh, he was up in Afghanistan. I was still in Iraq. We're uh, both working for SOC, but I was covering down for medics at different FOB sites when they would go on their leave rotation. So I'd spend one month at one FOB, and then they'd fly me over to another one, and I'd I'd work there and, until uh, one of the uh, Ed's teams got hit in Afghanistan, didn't have a medic on board. And so they, uh, they dropped my name in the hat and I got the job. So I transitioned over to Afghanistan and, and we've been, uh, hooked up ever since. No, that's great. So the reason we're here today, folks, is that, uh, Al and Ed just published their first book as co-authors. It's called the postcards through hell. I read the book cover to cover, which is rare for me to do that. And this is one phenomenal read. The good thing about it is that if you're a prior military, prior law enforcement or contractor, you get this. If you're a civilian that's never been in combat, you'll understand it when you read this book. Because there's some heart-wrenching stuff in here that make you cry. Then you have that demon boy 
which we'll talk a little bit about in the rest of this podcast, that shows that things are not as green as everybody thinks they are in the contracting world. I think I can say with, with total honesty is that, yeah, give me $150,000, $200,000 a year to go down range and get shot at. But if I get killed, I don't really get too much you know, if you're in the military. And some of the stories in this book, if they were military guys, every single one that's in this book would have a bronze star or a silver star, and in some cases, uh, I think a, a Navy Cross, based off of the stories that I read through this book. And you guys articulated and kind of broke it down to how people can understand it in layman's terms. I call it a kindergarten term. What it actually means to be a contractor in a wartime zone, which means it's a business. It's not like the military, which is still a bit of it, but it gives you that thing. So, I mean, the biggest thing I want to talk about is the, the ring road. As we all know, the ring road was the road. If you wanted a gunfight, hit ring road. You know, I mean, that's just the way. I've, I've, never, I haven't been to Afghanistan. I'm just going off of prior stories. So kind of give me in your both views of when you got on Ring Road, knowing you had to travel that, getting to Marker 24, I believe it was, and you know you're coming up to get in a gunfight. How do you prepare for all this? Start from the night before, you're doing your mission brief, giving the off order, and then you're running out, you're going outside, you're going through the vehicles, make sure everything's set up, everything's tied down. You know, you're running through your rehearsals. And it doesn't have to be, hey, contact left, contact right. But you know what? You're running through these rehearsals as a team to build in that team mindset. You know, how to set up a toe, how to fix a flat tire, how to set up uh, to take down a fuel, uh, a gas station so we can uh, get fuel from the uh, civilians. You know, all the little things that, you know, everybody thinks that rehearsals are all about, you know, mag dumping and popping smoke. <clears throat> Heck yeah, no. Those little things there, like, you know, how to change that tire. Where is the power drills? Where's the, uh, you know, all the little things that you, that way, instead of spending 10 minutes uh, changing a tire, you're only spending three minutes. You had to go ahead and make sure the kit, now your medical kits, I'm sure you had a blowout kit in every every one of your vehicles where you had three in a convoy or four in a convoy. But in those blowout kits, what actually did you have as a standard SOP for these guys every time you travel? Because there had to be something that you, I'm talking about when you were traveling with these guys, had in each vehicle that you knew was there, it's shit wet fat. We actually carried uh, three different types of med kits. Uh, everybody had their own IFAC. It had uh, the basic items, but then they would personalize them uh, according to what they felt they needed. And then we carried the, the these go bags that were just a lot easier to throw to one person or throw to another. Or if you had to get out of the truck real quick, you could take it with you and add a little bit more com comprehensive stuff. And then, of course, my bag. Uh, was set for a 10-man team, uh, had uh, surgical assets, uh, you know, just a, a bunch of things that, that would, uh, you know, help us in a situation where we were injured and it would take more than 72 hours to get to a, a cash. So, right. What is a cash? What's that mean in layman's terms? For oh, a combat surgical hospital? Yeah. Just thinking of how you had to get, how you had to get supplies. You know, how do you do it? Because you're really, you're there on a government contract but not under the SOFA agreement contract for being in a theater, which is two people that you understand. You have a SOFA agreement, then you have a DOD agreement with that country to do co the contract and stuff that, like you guys were doing. So yeah, I, the, a, the interesting difference. thing to me was the, uh, you know, the company, they gives you a packing list. You know, when you get your letter of authorization and, and you're getting ready to go into country, they'll, they'll send you a list of items that you, you probably bring with you. And of course, one of them will be like an IFAC kit. 
And and then once you get into country, uh, the company might have some remedial supplies that are just kind of laying around, but uh, no, certainly not nothing or enough to support a you know a mission nor nor uh, an entire villa. You know, we not just responsible for guys out uh, that are running on the roads, but we have uh, static guards that we have to take care of. We got our administrative staff, and you're basically the dock for all of those people. And, right. And so, if you weren't out there spending your own money, or people weren't helping you out by sending you supplies, because I knew a lot of guys in theater, both Iraq and Afghanistan, that would send me medical equipment, but we had to beg, borrow, and steal, <laughs> and that's basically what it was. You know? Well, yeah, that's what I was telling that early because. I know when I was in Iraq in uh, 06, I had a couple guys out there that were contractors that needed some stuff, you know, whether medical kits or, you know, chem lights or new tires. There was someone running the Humvees. And it was just, it's who you know. If you know somebody in theater, especially if you served with them, shit, whatever you need, we got it for you, especially from the military to contract guys. But I mean, the difference I have, I guess it is from the ring of highway is the same thing as uh, the highway of death and, and, um, in Kuwait. So when we did Desert Shield, Desert Storm, we had that, that long highway, the highway of death. We actually were the RNS that watched the B-52s come over and bomb the shit out of that. Yeah, we like, we got a few things that were different, I guess, because we had to drive. We have the Brits kind of pack up some of the bodies until they called us out of there because it was a, it was a, it was a death trap because all the disease and stuff was going on. They've been laying there for two days. You know, yeah. they were just, it was just amazing. But just saying it, because a lot of guys don't get it. When you're in theater, you talk about the fear and the adrenaline. When you're in a gunfight, you have no fear. You have a shitload of adrenaline. It's when the gunfight's done, you sit down and kind of do reconsolidation, figure out what's going on. Is when you realize, go, damn, that was close. You know, you got bullet holes by your ear, or you know, you got an IED went off in the corner, and you're like, Shit, thank God that truck was there. You know. But I mean, for you guys, you both were in Iraq and Afghanistan. Kind of go over the difference between, I'll start with you out first, the difference between the dynamics in, Af- in Iraq when you were there, uh, 2004, right? 2005. 2005. Uh, and then you turned out in 2008. Then I jumped back and forth between the two countries. So Good money. So it's all matters. Yeah. <laughs> Good money. It's all matters. So what the difference was between Iraq at that time and then when you got to Afghanistan in 08, uh, when the fight was heavy, pretty heavy. Well, uh, the eye-opener for me was EFPs. I didn't really know a lot about uh, explosive leaf war projectiles or uh, shape charges. And we had, uh, that was a primary weapon of choice with the enemy. And uh, that's the reason I met Ed is because I was writing an article uh, titled Thames in the Red Zone for one of these uh, SWAT magazines here. And uh, I didn't know anything about it. And he, he basically educated me, you know, this as a, a shape charge. And it, it can defeat armor up to, you know, seven inches fit thick it comes out at like twenty thousand feet per per second and and it's, it's a devastating it's you know uh, a catastrophic takedown so uh, we had to respond to those types of injuries and so it, that was the learning curve the other thing that was different was everything that we did in uh iraq was psd you know personal security detail and we're transporting we're transporting people instead of cargo there, there's a huge difference the risk might be the same but you're moving a lot faster you know you're working with uh, a different set of guys because they're uh you know all, all different, you know, we had third country nationals in Afghanistan, but these guys were primarily uh, South African and uh, wow. Australia and New Zealand. So, but they were like-minded individuals. That was a pretty cool thing because then you get that team dynamic and then it kind of helps you transition to Afghanistan. But we never saw the enemy in Iraq. 
I never saw a bad guy. I mean, I'm, I might have said one guy was a bad guy, you know, but uh, I never really uh, uh, traded traded bullets with him uh, like we did in Afghanistan. When we got over to Afghanistan, the Taliban, you know, there's some there's some hard ass motherfuckers. They like to fight. Well, yeah. The learning curve for us uh, uh, getting in the convoy. I had no experience with convoy operations, and so I, you know, it was basically on the job training. But uh, SOC doesn't doesn't hire guys and train them up. They hire skill set. And uh, I had, a, I think, enough of a skill set to be recommended for the job because of, I needed to, to fill that, that specific uh, billet. Everything else was on-the-job training. And what about for you, Ed? Because you were both in Iraq and Afghanistan as well. Yeah, yeah. Were, you, were you in Iraq as a, as a Marine, though? Uh, for the invasion. Okay. But then afterwards, I retired right after that. And then when I went back to Iraq, I was there as a contractor. Biggest difference with the IEDs between Iraq and Afghanistan, Iraq had some pretty elaborate stuff. Uh, I mean, you, know, you had the passive infrared uh, trip lines and stuff like that, that uh, so they could uh, and, and all set off of a time delay. Right. Versus Afghanistan, the, 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 the Afghans weren't as elaborate. Well, what they lacked in finesse, they made up for in size and their ability to hide those IEDs. So, you might not catch an, you probably wouldn't catch an EFP in a, uh, Afghanistan, but you probably have about 80 pounds of HMX go off underneath your vehicle. After it's not a route clearance team roll over and saying, well, yeah, it's all good. And, uh, the other thing was, uh, yeah, the, the Taliban, they, they, they weren't afraid to fight us. I mean, they would stand and fight you. Uh, Iraq, they'd pop an IED, they'd pop a few rounds and they'd go- disappear. Afghanistan, they would stand and fight you. And I remember my buddy Chris Vale. I uh, first came on my team as an ATL. I was briefing him up. And I was like, "Look, man, these guys—they they will fight us. They will stand and fight." He looked at me, smiled, and said, "Ah, a worthy adversary." <laughs> yeah. I was like, "Dude, be careful what you wish for, man." <laughs> I tell every young kid I, I hear today, even being retired, like, "Yeah, you know, I'm gonna—I'm gonna join the military. I want to go down raids and shoot bad guys." And my question to him is, "You—you you play Halo?" Or I'm gonna explain to you one thing. Those bullets that are being shot on Call of Duty, they're real in real life, and they they hurt. Yeah. So just so you know, you wish for it, and it's probably bad, but you wish this combat. That's why I tell them to note: there's no reset button in a real gun. No, no. I think in, in life as well, we talk about it all the time is that you always the, the what if factor, and I try never to have what if I'd have done this, or that's why I got married so late, twenty six. I wanted to make sure I was with the right chick, yeah, the rest of my life. I don't want to play this game of dating and going. Yeah, I just don't want to play it. So it's like everything in life. You got to make sure that you want to push forward, and, you know, and, and do the right thing. But, you know, in your case, as you guys were in the military, you fortunately had an opportunity to go down range. But now your contractor is getting shot at for big money and loving it. And going, there's something wrong with these dudes. There's something, there's a screw loose upstairs or to say that. Because even in the book, you guys get pissed off during a couple of firefights like, hey, shitheads. What do you, all we're trying to do is get to the hotel to get something to eat for Christ's sake. You know, leave us alone. You know, and we'll, we'll get to some of that parts here as, as well. But I mean, at the end of the day, is I was trying to get it. The way Afghanistan ROEs are for the military and Iraq and Afghanistan were two different ROEs. Um, and allowed us to, you know, we had to follow Geneva Convention certain guidelines. But for contractors, you're kind of left out there on your own. Unless you know somebody at a FOB you're going to, you can set up entry to them or you know you got a clear route. Dude, you're on your own. You can, your air support says in the book. Your medevacs says in the book. It sucks. Yeah. You know, especially for you, uh, Doc Chase, Al, 
is that as much as you busted your ass to talk to your medevac, your dust off guys, and go to the hospital to get all this stuff, you still probably had to pull teeth once in a while because you're like, who are you? You're a what? A contractor? You know, you don't follow my preview. But you that know and you've read in a book, if I didn't know you and I read the book, dude, you're a badass. <laughs> and you're, you're, you're also a grumpy old man, too, to everybody in this book. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the first thing out, oh, yeah, Doc Chase, he's a grumpy old man. But I mean, it just shows that the camaraderie, you talk about the brotherhood and all that stuff. What is brotherhood? Me take care of the guy to my left and to my right. That's brotherhood. Because I'm not worried about myself right now. As long as these two are safe, that means I'm safe. Yeah. No, we're good. That's the brotherhood. Willing to risk your life for the guy to your left and God to your right. That's mm -hmm. just what it is. Hey, you know, we're we're old for a reason, too. Now, my, my question, too, would be the training you received for Iraq, was it different than the training from, no, you the training going to Afghanistan? Because you mentioned earlier, Doc, that you had to have a specific skill set for Afghanistan to go to SOC. But in Iraq, you really did. You, you're a doc. You're a paramedic, blah, blah, blah. That allowed you to go on and do things. But well, when you get hired, they you know they they run you through their their uh, uh, indoctrination course that you know it and includes a lot of other stuff. I remember I took a battlefield reconnaissance and IED recognition uh, as well, and that was an eye opener, man. I mean, it uh, they had you drive through at your normal speed. It was about a quarter mile lane, of, and and you say there's four guys on your team, and you have to pick out all these IEDs and, and booby traps and stuff like that at 60 miles an hour. And so we get to, we go through the quarter mile and one guy's got three or four and I've got a couple and another guy's got a couple. And, and they say, okay, now we want you to drive through it at 10 miles an hour. And at 10 miles an hour, we're saying, holy shit, man, there's like 30 or 40 planted IEDs all over the place. And then they take you out of it and then, they, then you got to walk through it. And there were something like 240 devices that were buried. And I mean, there were animals and Coke cans and and trash and and pallets of wood and and, and some of them were up in the oven. We, we weren't looking up we were looking down you know we're kids fires <laughs> we're looking for dead animals that and all kinds of stuff and and i and so the first mission that we ran after that everybody had pucker factor but we'd see it we'd see a stereo wire hanging out and it would offset to the left or offset to the right yeah and yeah i I think too with the thing with the IEDs. Did you you guys have uh, no kidding EOD guys with you in Afghanistan, or was it something you guys trained? No, no. I worked with EOD guys on on different types of contracts that were interesting because you could you know identify ordinances and and, and things of that nature. Uh, when Ed was talking about how they were able to uh, bury these devices, you know, sometimes they'd use pressure plates, sometimes they'd be command detonated, sometimes they'd be uh, uh, you know physically detonated, but. Um, they ran them in coverts, and these coverts ran almost every thousand yards. You'd see a covert on Ring Road, right? Uh, you know, because they're they have farming plots everywhere, and that's how they they crisscross their irrigation. So these guys aren't out here digging holes; they're just crawling through a pipe and putting a device in there, and then it's a piece of cake. And they can do it at at night with uh, without uh, with minimal detection or or whatnot. And, and and there's several times that I and I guarantee you. Ed can attest to this. We probably drove over IEDs that didn't detonate. You read these stories in here, some of the cats you serve with. I, I, there's a couple of them I'd love to meet. You guys would be in the, like you said, the, the definitely the Silver Star Navy Cross Arena. And in some cases, you probably could push, uh, you know, for Medal of Honor for a couple of things. I mean, it has the ability. Ground comes to mind there. Yeah. Right? So I mean, I, you, you know, if there's not an award for uh, 
for Valor, there should be a award for uh, one tough son of a bitch, man, because that guy. Uh, not Scott, only, yeah, Scott. Yeah, not only did he get hurt really bad, but uh, he he, uh, he protected his team, uh, you know, while he was injured. And uh, then he, after he goes on the recoveries, he turns around and comes back. I mean, that that's one that had head injury, right? That had head injury stay behind. Oh, yeah, he had back in a couple fractured go. Yeah, he had broken back. He was he was in the lead vehicle on my team. We were going to organize skin. Okay, yeah, I got that now. Yeah, and then uh, lead vehicle, he was in the lead vehicle, turned the corner around like an embankment, a couple of cargo trucks, and then I saw a gray pool of smoke, and I heard the crack. And I was like, oh, shit, so I'm on the radio. Hey, lead, this is Hammer. Lead, this is Hammer. And he wasn't answering, so I uh, deploy, and my medic then was uh, John Pickett, Buddha. He comes running right up behind me, and I see the lead vehicle, Beautiful. It was perfectly timed. The doors were blown open, and uh, yeah, he. Uh, we we go running up, and I see a brown thing laying out on the uh, ground. I thought it was the uh, sleeping bag, and I was like, "Oh God, please let this be a sleeping bag." So I grab it and pull it over. It was my interpreter. He was killed instantly. Uh, Fawad. His legs were amputated at the knees, but there was no blood. So that just tells. Yeah, I mean, overpressure. Yeah, he, he was dead before he even came out of the vehicle. Yeah. And so then I was looking at him, and I looked back at Buddha, and he, I must have given him that weird look like, gee, Doc, can you fix him? Yeah. Uh, he was like, fuck him, he's gone, let's go. And I was like, oh, yeah, no shit, let's go. We run towards the vehicle. Buddha jumps in the back of the vehicle with the two gunners, and I'm going around the front, and that's when Scott Brown plots out with an AK-57. And he runs 100 yards up this hill with a broken back and two fractures in his pelvis. Runs up a hill and pulls himself on security. I was like, dude, I run up there after him like, stay here. Do not move. I cannot afford to lose you. Right. It, like, dude, I'm all fucked up. I'm on adrenaline right now. I was like, all right, but just stay here. All right. So we go back down. Uh, we pull up Harrow, the driver, out of the vehicle. It was apparent, though, that he, was, he wasn't he was going to make it. He was just coughing up huge amounts of blood. You know, it's just like, God damn, dude, I'm sorry, bro. I'll just have to see you on the other side. Yeah. Uh, my doc worked him for like 20 minutes. Uda worked on him for like 20 minutes. He's still doing his, I mean, he tried to save him. Uh, yeah. We finally got, got the convoy moving again. Uh, Uda carries him down, squat down the hill. I carry Scott to the vehicle, and as I'm getting ready to set him down in the bumper, Buddha goes, hey, be careful. Don't don't drop him. And then all his weight just shifts the wrong way, and I end up fucking dropping him. He's like, ah. I'm like, God, dude, I'm so sorry. Yeah, he ended up standing for like another three hours as we drove out of there. He ended up standing for like another three hours up on the PKM. While we uh, drove out of there, and uh, yeah, you could hear him scream every time the truck rolled. You could hear him scream because that was all bone on bone grinding. I was like, ah, but uh, we finally got him to the Fob Organi and uh, got him into the uh, cash, and uh, they got him out. Uh, you know, they got him stabilized. Right. Yeah. But that, guess, like six months later, he's back on. Uh, he's back on the job. He's like, ah, you know what he told me was, I'm going to leave this country on my terms. None of the terms. Some little kid with uh, lucky with some trip wires. You know, it's a, it's amazing to say that because obviously there's some events in all our careers, but 
we had a kid in uh, in Iraq. Uh, no, this is Dennis Show Dennis Storm. His name was Cook. Michael Cook. Yeah. I was one of our, yeah. Mike Cook was he was in the uh, company with me. And we were we were getting ready to leave the the berm. We we're getting all the teams ready to leave the berm. And we were at OP five. And there's a kind of like a, a a mass unit there that had a heli a heliport. It was a bunch of rocks. So as he's walking across it, he looked at Bill Bates and um Kevin Corbin and, and Dave Light and said, You guys are gonna carry me across these rocks. We're like, Yeah, whatever, dude, whatever. So they go out and do their 14 day patrol. They come back, we're collecting ammo. Well, he had his grenade uh attached to his uh deuce gear. And he pulled out of the home B, obviously the pin got pulled, and uh he was killed. Yeah. But he knew that those three cats were gonna carry him across that rock platform. And the, the, the eerie part was when they were carrying him across it, they all stopped. They're like, that son of a bitch knew we were going to carry him across this gravel landing pad. It's just, it's just weird how people have that instinct, you know? I've gone out of my, yeah, I've gone out of my, my terms. So there's, I, I don't know how they, it was a second sense or fifth sense or sixth sense, how do you want to call it? But it's just weird how people say, hey, I'm going on my own terms and, you know, this guy gets hurt, so screw it. I'm going to go back to Steve's. He'll back out, come back out here and whoops him out. Not, he was going to leave Afghanistan on his terms. Yeah. yeah. Not, not on the terms of uh, a lucky trigger man. Now, my question is, was he a prior military guy? Yeah, he was a uh, former Army. Uh, he was an Army scout. Yep. And then he was a uh, cop down in Texas. Uh, and, and then uh, retired from uh, law enforcement, and then he got into uh, contracting. And yeah, he did a lot of work with the ANP. He uh, did a lot of work with the ANP. As a matter of fact, he was a witness, and with the uh, Marines that were embedded with the uh, ANP down in the Helmand Province. Okay, because he was telling me the story about a Marine lieutenant. These uh, Afghans were smoking hash right before a patrol, so this lieutenant went up there, pistol whipped two of them. They were going to court martial the lieutenant. Oh yeah, yeah, and it. it and they ended up uh, flying. Uh, this is right when Scott's healing up from the uh, IED blast. So they finally court-martialing the lieutenant. He's he's hobbling in on crutches, and he meets the lieutenant. Uh, how's it going? And uh, you know they catch up, and uh, he tells the, everybody what's going on. And the the the, the uh, judge at the uh, at the uh, uh, court-martial is like, I, I can't believe we're wasting our time with this. Yeah, those NDP were jeopardizing Marines' lives by their actions. Hell, they were killing them for Christ's sake. They would just know what AMP is: Afghan National uh, Police Police, right? Yeah, yeah. Afghan so, yeah. So, if everybody's read the news or heard anything uh, in Afghanistan specifically, I think we had a total of like eight Marines or twelve Marines that were killed while teaching the AMP or out trolling with them. Yep. I, I mean, I know a story of a team that went out with twelve of them. And by the time they got to the target, there was only six Marines left. The other 12 AMPs were gone. They just, they you know, obviously it was a hellacious firefight, but it's just kind of, you know, why? Why are we wasting our time on stuff? They, he was trying to protect his boys, the lieutenant, yep. that is. I, I'm surprised he just didn't beat their ass and put him in a fucking hospital call a day. You're done. Yeah. yeah, you're done. I'm not playing this game. But I mean, again, see, that's what you have to go through being whether you're a contractor or whether you're in the military, overseas, or in a combat environment. There's a lot of things you have to watch what you do because somebody up in brass, they're there for two things get the combat action ribbon and they get a combat award. That is it. Yep. They're not there like you guys 
out there, you know, treading the ground and, and doing your job part. People don't know how meaningless it seems in their eyes that you guys are driving mail. What? Do you know what else is going on in this convoy? You guys, that's what kind of pisses me off about the whole thing. This book will help people understand that, you know, Afghanistan specifically is that it was a different animal. And there are oh, certain yeah. things that you guys did that people do not know or the public don't know. You know why? Because the government doesn't want to know that. You guys were down there doing the duty for the United States. You're like our our off-board varsity team. We had issues. You're our farm team. That's what you call a farm team. Because most of your prior military or prior law enforcement, did you have anybody on your team, whether Iraq or Afghanistan, that was not a prior police officer or firefighter or civil servant or military? Everybody in, in Iraq, we had a couple of volunteer firefighters that were medics. They're not really law enforcement officers, but they might have had a TCCC course or worked worked on a, like a SWAT team as as a uh, a mutual aid asset or something of that nature. But these guys, they would come over, and it it would be like, oh, okay, this is what the real world is like. And uh, next thing you know, they're gone. Uh, they didn't. They, you know, when you get hired by DynCorp, they show you a video of a guy getting his head cut off. Half the half the class leaves at that point, and then yeah, to show stay. that. Yeah, then they say, okay, you're you're good enough to go overseas, and then you go overseas, and then you have your in-country training before they put you out on a street. Right. Uh, then you, and it's a it's a it's a prequal too because you have to do physical fitness, shooting qualifications, uh, and, and you know, and take their course on foreign weapons and things of that nature. And then once that, then you. Then you go right out to PSD and and you're behind the wheel. So I mean, if you're if you're just a, para, that's why Ed said he likes paramedics better than uh, uh, combat medics because combat medics uh, they kind of lose that skill set over time because they don't do it active unless they're still in the military, which we never had anybody that worked on contract that was active duty or even uh, even reserve that I'm aware of. Um, but uh, paramedics, they have to maintain that skill set. They have to take their CEs. They have to train all the time. And I think that's a, that's a benefit, you know. I mean, everything that I learned as a corpsman, everything that I learned as a paramedic, and then even live tissue training still didn't prepare me for what I saw in both countries. It, I think it's tough for you guys. Cause I, you know, we'll go with, obviously, we do the TCCC before we go downrange. We, you know, do it all the time. And then, obviously, we had the SARC corpsmen, the SARC hours, and not. I'll take a SARC or a paramedic that has prior military law enforcement uh, experience over a PA or sometimes doctors to perform either some type of short surgery or stitches or I, I will take them in a heart because I know what they've been through. I've seen their training. I watched them in, you know, difficult situations where they've had guys that had, you know, double amputees or missing three limbs and how they actually worked and assessed accordingly from head to toe. Uh, you're, you're, you're phenomenal individuals because you got to put yourself away to take care of what's in front of you. Sometimes that can be difficult, especially in the middle of a firefight. You know, you got bullets swinging all over you and you're going, oh, shit. But you keep your head, you take care of the patient because that's what that person is in front of you. Not a friend, nothing like that. He's a patient. And you're taking care of that patient. So sometimes your feelings can be pushed away until you get that patient taken care of. Then you go back and you're like, dude, you know, so and so, and when you lose somebody, it's it's Boy. devastating. Like you said, there's a part. Yeah, there's a part in your book that I think is super significant, and we'll get into it as well. But there's a part in the book when you people get it, you go. Where can you get this at? Amazon and where else? Barnes and Noble. Barnes yeah. and Noble. So we're not done with this conversation. Just let you know, 
But there's a piece in this book that I think is essential to the entire book that brings us to the point where we're talking about suicide and we talk about demons and talking to somebody. Buy the book, read the book, and tell me, just email me and say, hey, Stu, I found it. I found what the piece you're missing. And I'll tell you both, well, Ed knows. But it was very, to me, very significant throughout the book because it it took each caption or each time you've done a mission or something like that, it took that part and you, re- you kept it stored. So I'm sure you still have that item I'm talking about. You still have that item, Ed? I still have some of the items, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it kind of brings you that reminder. So when you got a demon, you can go to that item and you can look at it and say, there's why. Then you can put it away and, and go move on. And I'll tell you, uh, out here, once we get off the air, we'll stay off for a couple minutes. But I, I think for me is that that was significant. Because it's hard to stay over there that long after you've lost a friend or after... Al, when you get done treating somebody and it doesn't go the way it's supposed to go, that's heart wrenching. But yet, you know what you got to do? You got to push more. Because if you're, st- especially if you're stuck on an X, you get your stuff up, SOP it, get off the X as quick as possible. As you say all the time, push through this thing and, and, and be able to do what you need to do. But here's one of the big questions I have. And I want you two to be truthful with me. Don't lie to me. When you were in theater, how many guys you had that thought they were operators? They wanted to be operators, but they just sucked. They weren't operators. They oh, just were pieces of shit. That a lot, did it? Yeah, there, there was a uh, there was a few, and that was I hate to say it, but that was the beauty of that fighting season. It weeded them out. You know, they didn't like going through an ambush, except you know, like going between uh on the run to Jalalabad. All of a sudden, your ambush isn't a point ambush where they're just hitting you at a junction. You're going ten kilometers, and they're they're shooting at you, and launching RBGs at you for ten k. Like you know, yeah. I did a samurai a couple of times, you know, or going down to Gaza. You're going through that uh, Salar Sayadabad area. Yeah, you know, the whole village is a kill zone. I mean, they did not like, and there were some people that they come back from that saying, "I'm this is not for me." I was like, "Man, tell you what, we got some static sites opened up here if you want to come on those." Yeah, yeah, drop. That way we didn't have to find somebody in. But yeah, yeah that yeah, that fight that that was an equalizer. That that weeded out everybody. That weeded out all the uh, wannabes. Yeah, I think that's what my point is that you have those we talk, I talk about it all the time, uh the wannabes or those that want to be like you or do the things you do, but they just can't. And it's there's for a reason. That's why they have kinds of like yourself that you know what? Today's down a board. Let's go ahead down the you know, the ring highway or the ring road and go get in a firefight just for shits and giggles. I mean, that's the type of caliber you have in the agencies that you guys work for on the civilian side as federal contractors. You know, you have guys across all the military services, and I, I use this word pretty loosely, but special forces and all the services. You know, it's, it's a different, unique individual to be in those units because of stuff like this. You're not with you know, 24 dudes and one patrol. You're not, you're with four dudes, six dudes, or 12 dudes. That's it. No more, no less. And if you don't have a good doc, docs are a lifesaver, you're kind of screwed. So having the experience, like with, uh, with Al, to basically after, you know, later on, you got to go, okay, you docs need to have this for each blowout kit, for each vehicle. And then you had going ahead and saying, hey, as a team leader, these are what my SOPs are. So when we do our rehearsals, Here's how we're going to follow it. Yeah. It's just nice having that military experience, I think, to be a contractor. My personal opinion. I don't know. I don't know because I've never been a contractor. To go yeah. 
the happy medium for us was is is a lot like a thin blue line in law enforcement. You know, when they talk about a thin blue line, they're talking about how thin that line is. And the mindset for these operators was just as thin. That's why they're so easy to pick out. I mean, you have guys that are operators or, you know, and they fall technically under that term. They run or freeze or they never show up again. That'll happen as soon as they have their first ambush. There was guys that were on country before I got there for two or three months. And, uh, but nothing happened to them the whole time they were there. And then the very first time it happened, uh, they're gone. So then they're, they're going to say on the resume, yeah, I had four months in country, but they only got ambushed one time. And then on the other end of the spectrum is the guy that he can operate, but his head is just, it, it's screwed on backwards. Their cowboy attitude, you know, they're, they want to rough they want to stand on the running board of a vehicle while it's moving and shooting. And that's not how it works, man. If you're that type of a person, you're aggressive. You're a negative asset to us because you're pissing Afghans off that normally aren't pissed off at you. And then the next time you roll through town, they go, Oh, I remember those guys. And then they're going to, they're going to either do something to you or tell you, turn you over to the Taliban because of what something that somebody did. I mean, throwing water bottles, one thing, but you know, shooting at somebody just for the hell of shooting at them or, or uh, thinking it's a joke to toss a flashbang out there, uh, it's not doing the team any good. No, and we we weeded those guys out as well. There was no tolerance for assholes. Yeah, what what brings you? What's funny? You were reading my notes, weren't you? Because my next thing was, how many guys did you have out there had that cowboy attitude? You know, all they wanted to do was run and gun, and weren't that good at it. But they made it look like they were that good. You know, I was standing. I want to make this look like Hollywood. Can I stand on the running boards while shooting an RPK going down the road? No, no, no. Get back you know, to the truck. I didn't write about this, but there was one guy that was practicing a quick draw while he was driving in a fucking vehicle and he shot himself in the leg and we sent that motherfucker home. I mean, uh, <laughs> he ain't in the book because he doesn't deserve to be in the book. You know, it's, no. it's just, yeah. There, there's some people we don't, uh, yeah, like, uh, acknowledge. Acknowledge. Yeah. When you're a shithead, though, you're dumb. At, how many people don't? It's funny to me, as much as I shot, I I had an ND when I was a second force. Me and Sparky were running a final drill on Friday. I didn't feel like picking up brass in my 45 jam. And I hit it. And when I hit it, I lost control. And I grabbed it around that range. Condition 4, both my MP5 back in the day. My MP5, my 45, and walked off. And they're like, what's I just had an ND. Now, the old thing is there's those that have and those that will. It's just the way it is. But these guys that quick draw in the vehicles are yeah. standing there kind of Looking at their gun, gun, like, what the fuck are you doing? Bam, shoot himself in the foot. Had a guy in Guam do that, a SWAT guy. <laughs> we let him tell, we let him shoot our 45s, our socks. He's kind of looking at it, and obviously, you got that beaver tail selected and the safety off. And he's, he's holding like this, and he's so it's pretty nice. He, but bam, goes through his knee, through his foot. Oh. But he was kind of, he was sitting there playing with it when he's putting it down. He's got like an annealing thing. It's, yeah. It's just kind of why, why? What's the purpose for <laughs> You know, I mean, but the horror stories we hear on the, you know, the news or people talking, a lot of these horror stories, the reason they're talking about it is because it's true. This shit's happened. You know, you've had people come out there and just start shooting over kids and then ladies' hands that are in the field just to, you know, to fuck with them. What's the purpose for that? Because at the end, yeah, end of the day, you need that. I need that local there to help me protect me. I mean, I know for, you know, the Iraq something I've danced that people I've talked to is, Get out there, know the villagers. Give them some money, you know, that we call it the slush fund. Give them some money, kind of settle them down. You take over a house, here's a couple thousand dollars. 
But then you yeah, have have that. If you uh, remember that quote uh, from Sonny Barger, Hell's Angels, you know, you treat us bad, we'll treat you worse. You treat us good, we'll treat you better. Yeah. I think, and that's that. That was basically our mentality because we knew that we, we we had to live with these people, we had to work with them, uh, and if you treat them with respect because they deserve the respect. But if they disrespect you, then hell yeah, man, then it's on. Yeah. But uh, you have to know that in advance. You're not out there looking for a fight. You're just there ready to fight. There's the difference. Yeah, I think that's what I was alluding to is that being a contractor, you're piece to push through certain parts without the whether you're driving or you sit up in a fob. It's making sure those people, the locals, because they're not, they don't give, they're, they're in a bad place to begin with. We're in their country trying to, you know, you know, make the revolution go away and put them, they don't give a shit. All they want to do is stop shooting and killing us, you know, and we used to use the local populace all the time, especially at MRI affairs. We should go down there, you know, the, the store right outside the governor's building where we had our fob. It, the people love this. They even let us know that, hey, something's happening today or something's going to happen tonight. We had kind of an idea. But again, to treat the people like shit in the area you're in, guess what? They're going to shit on you all day long. You'll never get them. Big time. Yeah. But next point, these shark teams. I'm trying to figure out, when I was reading the book, I was trying to figure out the difference, the shark team and what you guys actually did, your teams. What was the difference between a shark team and what you guys were actually doing? Uh, the shark teams were actual PSD teams in Iraq. Okay. They operated out of Baghdad. Uh, by Decor from the Bull program. I mean, I was one of the trainers for him working for Al was actually one of this the guy that's got sound bite problems. He's 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 coming across uh, garbled. You doing oh, hey, really how far are you away from your speaker, brother? Um jeez, I'm like pretty close to it. Okay, there you go. I got you. Okay. Yeah, the shark teams were uh, an actual PSD team. They moved people from point A to point B. Uh, in Baghdad and around Iraq. Okay. Uh, you know, they worked for Dine Corps. They were a part of the SIPPOL program. Uh, Al was, in actual, was actually one of the medics on one of the shark teams. I was one of the trainer and evaluators working for Crucible, but we were contracted by Dine Corps to uh, train up the shark teams. Right. Uh, so uh, the, 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 that's the shark teams. What we did in our Afghanistan was uh you convoy security uh we moved uh pretty much we moved uh the mail and we moved secure loads for another client down range the mail was pretty much set onto a few other drop sites but the other client was uh, all over the country i mean we were up uh, all the way out to herat down to lashgagar kandahar up to mazar sharif Kanduz once or twice no, we got all over the country with uh, with the uh, mobile teams. Uh, but once again, we really weren't protecting people. The only people we were protecting were ourselves. Right. We were just bombing low. Yeah. In the car. And I think, too, that the difference between what... I got a thought here. I'm looking at my notes and trying to engage as well. Is that the difference between the PSD and PSDs were basically just taking clients personnel to base to base or whether it's a general or somebody from the RCD. Yeah. And then what you guys are doing with the cargo protecting, you know, the log train, basically the same thing with the, uh, with the mail. I, I, I think that I said, it was going somewhere with this, but I'll, I'll, I'll digress and come back to it. <laughs> well, I can tell you, uh, I'll tell you what I know about PSD is that probably, uh, 90% of the private military companies or contractors, uh, did their own PSD. 
um, the Shark teams were a premier PSD team. In other words, there were other companies that used us, high-ranking military officials, uh, VIPs, uh, because of the reputation of the Shark teams. I mean, we were fast. Uh, we moved in unison. We, we drove in, in uh, Department of State offset. Uh, we utilized uh, offensive driving skills, tactical driving skills, uh, and they were highly trained individuals. Those guys might have had, you know, different training here, different training there, but when you when the crucible gets hold of them, they put it all together, you know, and it's not just an evolution here or an evolution there. It's evolutions that combine into, a you know, a, a comprehensive uh, a drill that involved everything from uh, shooting, getting off the X, cross-decking, tactical tire changes. I mean, those guys were good at it. And, um, and we did it on a regular basis for a number of years successfully. We didn't lose any clients. And, right. uh, and, and that's what the shark teams are. They're the guys that do PSD. They get in a vehicle, they get a client, and then they move from point A to point B, and they get there. Uh, that's, that's pure luck where, you know, it's a lot different than when you're doing it uh, for the right reasons and, and you're, you're avoiding certain things and going certain ways and you're deviating your routes and you have alternative routes and all the planning that goes into it is extremely detailed. Right. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that, but, uh, the shark teams were probably the best. Yeah. So you we were talking earlier about the, uh, your client. So you guys were over there, Euro said DOD contract. And then while you were in theater, you had other agencies contract you guys out as well. On top, yeah, of we, had, we had one that uh, uh, it was called Bearing Point that that uh, was a bunch of attorneys that we had to drive around, and they were they were doing settlements when, let's say, uh, Army drops a flare, you know, from a helicopter and a house catches on fire. These these people they would file a claim, and of course, we'd have to take these attorneys out there, and they would do an assessment and pay them pay them off, you know, just to, to keep things down. That that's not a Department of State contract. That's a, that's a private contract. Right, and then there's non-governmental agencies like uh, uh, Parsa, you said, Chemonix, uh, 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 CHF, Chemo you know, uh, Community Housing Foundation. Those are non-governmental organizations that require transportation. I, I did PSD uh, for a guy that was a curator for in Alhilla in Babylon. And they were doing a Babylon restoration project. This guy carried like $30,000, $40,000 in cash everywhere he went. And it was like we were projecting the money, not so much the guy. Uh, the human being, yeah. Was, uh, you know, he was he's monitoring all these local nationals that are restoring these projects. And um, that's an individual client. That's an example of an individual client that re that's there temporarily. They require this type of protection, this type of uh, transportation. And, um, and, you know, that's how we that's how we got it. It was based on reputation. So what's it sounds like while you're here? Because you, you're actually over there under this contract, which has to be State Department uh, sanctioned. And while you're in theater, you have other private entities that are contacting your company saying, hey, I want I want Al's team to come with me to take me from point A to point B, whatever that is. That's what I was trying to get for the listeners, that while you're in theater under this umbrella contract, there's other ways that the company makes money with independent or private yes. clients while you're still in theater. So basically they're double dipping. They're making double the money off, but they're not paying you double, obviously. Well, they're not marketing for it, that's for sure. I, I, yeah. I know they're not seeking contracts when they're already obligated to one, but uh, you know, just based on reputation alone, uh, that's where people say, hey, I would rather m move with these guys. I would rather go with these guys. You know, So it's like we were a lot faster. 
you know, the yeah. military, yeah, they move in convoy, but a guy, uh, you know, you got a colonel or a general or something like that has to get to some place. He doesn't want to dick around driving at an MRAP pace when we can be driving at a, at, at a Tahoe pace, you know what I mean? So, uh, so you had Tahoe's in Afghanistan and F or F the five fifties in Afghanistan. Tahoe's were in Iraq. Yeah. Tahoe's and Suburbans in Iraq. We, we had, uh, Hilux, uh, and land and land cruisers as, uh, some of our, uh, B6 land cruisers, uh, that we use for PSD. Cause again, we had to do PSD and convoy operations in Afghanistan. Cause you got to move people back, back and yeah. forth from the airport to the hotel and, and, and whatnot. So that, you know, that all requires a PSD. So we had a PSD element at SOC in Afghanistan. Right. So it just seems like it's kind of tough. You guys go out and do a mission under your, your umbrella contract, come back and the boss comes in and said, Hey, we got this other contract just came up. You got 24 hours. We're going to wherever, whatever the case be. This guy was difficult for you guys going like, shit, we just got off the road, man. We've been on the road yeah. for days. So it wasn't, I mean, like sometimes you would, uh, all right, hey, you going up to Barbara. All right, shoot, we'll just go up to Barbara and we'll just hang out on the base for while the uh, client does their business up in Barbara. And, uh, you know, we'll load up the uh, back of the uh, Hilux or the uh, back of the uh, Land Cruiser with uh, all our goodies we've bought at the PX. Pogi, here it comes, the Pogi, Pogi store. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, the clients are like, hey, uh, can we go? Oh, oh, I guess we can go by the PX. <laughs> oh, like, oh, darn. Yeah. Hey, yeah. sir, we're pressing time, but uh, okay, we'll go. We'll go. Uh, all right. Let's get some other sense of humor is gone. I read the parent about Drew and his shit fest that he had within his vehicle. Yes. <laughs> oh, so I, I, I want you to get, you know, for me to explain it on air is kind of, it would take away from well, that, that that dude was in Drew's team. Okay. Yeah, that oh, you're right. Had, yeah, that dude was in Drew's team and he had must have had like some uh some uh GI stuff going on and yeah, no no kidding. They were oh, anytime we stopped, boom, he was running out. He was just he, he was just pissing out his ass essentially. And I guess now one time it was right there, there during a flock but during an ambush. He jumps out of the vehicle, the ambush kicks off, and he's like, I'm here now, I'm just gonna finish. <laughs> do I do I just say? Yeah, he finishes jumps back in the vehicle, the convoy gets moving while they get shot at. You know, and I'm I'm always looking at it from the uh the pathophysiological side point. You know, I mean you go in and you buy you stop off on the side of the road, we're gonna fuel up, and and the guy goes in and he reaches in a in a, in a ice cooler, grabs a red bull. And then opens it up, takes a drink. Well, how many fucking dirty hands have been in that fucking cooler? Where'd that water come from that made that ice? You know, and what they're basically drinking is E. coli, uh, all kinds of other uh, nasty ass diseases. And um, and next thing you know, you're down. And it's, you know, it, it all comes down to what you eat, when you eat it, how you eat it. Uh, wow. And and I and I got to take care of these guys. And so I tell them all the time, one guy. That that had the shits and he wanted to take medicine to stop the shits and I go if you do that, yeah, Carol, you're that's the only way it's going to get out of your body. If you stop that, it's going to come the other direction. And sure enough, he stops, stop, the diarrhea stops, and then he starts puking. And so you know you kind of have to balance those two, those two escape mechanisms, so to speak, just to keep the guy on the road. So no, it, it's what's funny about it is that just again if I get the. the our, our our docs and our teams, when it comes to the medical stuff, when you're out in the field, you know your hands dirty, you use sanitation and all that stuff. 
we're we're some dirty fuckers. That's just the way it is. You know, yeah. I'm thirsty. I'm gonna di- I'm getting water. I don't give a shit how it works. But our dogs are like, ah, don't do this. Don't do it. Change your socks. But now when you're out partying and having a great time, who's the one first one at the table? The doc. It's always the same. He's always the guy out there. He's the, the wildest running across the bars, and, you know, chasing all the women and stuff. Or the core, you know, our our docs, our corpsmen. <laughs> but it's just comical. Hey, dude, here's some real shit paper. Make sure you use wipes or stuff like that. That's a, I mean, obviously, it was a big thing for us in Afghanistan. Uh, sure you want to hear about the mistake I made? Yes, I would. Okay, so I, I drank Red Bull. I don't like drinking coffee. I, I have, like Red Bull. That's my advice. And uh, so I buy a case of Red Bull and shit. And uh, next thing you know, all my my uh, my gunners in the back are drinking my fucking Red Bull. And so uh, what I did was I had a case of water in the back for the gunners and a case of Red Bull in the front. And then the second time, I left the blast door open and they drank my fucking Red Bull. So I ran a mission with the blast door closed and the Red Bull up front. And we got caught in an ambush that lasted like 30 minutes. And so, and I'm on adrenaline and I'm drinking Red Bull and I'm thirsty as shit and I'm drinking more Red Bull. And the next thing you know, I overdosed on Red Bull because I didn't have no fucking water in the front of the cab like a dumbass. And so now you take Red Bull that's going to up your metabolism, it's going to up your heart rate, and then you got adrenaline that's upping your heart rate. And and what happened when that ambush was over, I stood up and I fell right over it. I must have knocked over a bolted table off the ground, man. I swear to God, I hit like a bag of rocks. And they want to know what happened to the dock. And they're looking for gunshot wounds. They're looking for bullet holes and all kinds of stuff like that. And I, I just don't eat on Red Bull. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that time I mean, that and the... Uh... The gun we had and stuff like that. You tell, you know, you thought, hey, don't trace some of us because your blood pressure will go up. You're going to have a massive stroke or heart attack. Because yeah. when you're in that in that fight, you don't yeah, think you're it. No, you don't. But see, again, the doc is the one drinking a lot of damn Red Bull. <laughs> he had adrenaline dump. He passes out from it. But yeah. now if we did it, oh, God, that's, you can't do that. You know, drink a red, kind of drink water and augment. Wait, fucker, you just fell the fuck out, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I just right. You know what? I I just ended up keeping the blast door open and and reupping on the supply of Red Bull. And I, and corporate would get pissed off that I spent the money on that stuff. And they started they would pay for it. what you could buy and and what you could spend your operational cash funds on. Because we used to you know get Red Bull and chips and and stuff like that. They said from now on you can't do this. You know. Uh, yeah, I'd say it in your book you tell about Red Red Red. What's the thing? Red Yeah, Red Yeah. 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 Yeah, well, again, and we talked about it earlier um, before we went on air is that if you're going to have the collars. They, they, their whole job is one to make sure that the the numbers match up for big boys, and that you're taking care. of, My assumption is you're taking care of here with them, whatever the operational fund is, whatever it is. But I mean, at some point, you have to have niceties for those guys in the field. I don't give a shit who you are, and if it has to come out of an operational fund to support that, why not? But it, again, it comes down to it's a it's a political thing. It comes out of dollars and cents. Well, you know, and Ed, uh, when Ed went up into ops, uh, he managed a lot of that stuff. And the, the the weird thing about that is he controls those expenditures. So you get your operational cash. You're responsible for winning these receipts. All this stuff, it has to balance out. On the stock Afghanistan side of things, we never really had uh, our thumb on the pulse, so to speak, or our finger on the pulse because of the fact that these guys would tell you that uh, an expedition fee or a licensing fee or something like that would cost X amount of money, and then they would pay that to the colonel, and then the colonel would go and pay the Ministry of Interior, or what we call the Ministry of Insurgency. Uh, they would pay them that money just to move that paperwork up to the front. But who's to say that $20,000 for an operational 
license or an arming authority uh, was only maybe uh, $2,000. How much yeah. of that was actually going in else's pocket? That's what we didn't control. But when it came to operational funds, Ed, Ed you know, he, he put pen to paper and, and, you know, kept that tally going. Yeah, just fine. Because you mentioned a colonel in your book, you know, how he was uh, an Afghan. He, you didn't know if he was going to take or not, but he had a lot of insight and certain things that he would take care and help you win. But I, I t we all know, I don't give a shit who you are, Eastern Bloc, third world countries, there's no such thing as a truth. Deception is the biggest thing in all those countries, whether you're in Iraq, Afghanistan, Asia, I don't give a shit because that's the way they live. That's their, their normal life. They don't know what it's like to have an outside entity come in and think that we're trying to help them and get them better, you know, make their life easier. It's a necessary evil. Yeah, exactly. So sometimes you got to pay those big colonels that are, you know, Afghanis and they got big pool throughout the country to allow you to get your taxes, allow you to get your the ability to carry your, uh, your guns in theater. Because people don't notice, when you go into a foreign country, I don't give a shit, it's the military or it's contracting, there's certain paperwork that's got to be filed through the State Department and filed through the country to enter into that country. You're like, when we got Iraq and Afghanistan, you need an entry saying, okay, yes, you can come in and help us, whatever that is. You know, that was the ITAR regulation, yeah. I was trying to think of ITAR, but at the end of the day, that's just how it works, you know? People are going to ask you, and you got to ask permission to go to somebody else's country to go fuck them up. Hey, I'm going to come in. Do you mind? you mind if I do that? You know, yeah. that's just the way, it's the way the politics are. You know, it's just the way it is. You know, I think for me, because uh, I never had the thought when I retired, because I was too damn broken, never had the thought to go contract. I, I didn't, I'll be honest, I didn't have the balls. I figured I was downrange enough. Uh, you couldn't pay me enough to go back down range to get shot at again and yeah, I just couldn't do it. Maybe because I couldn't walk either, but I just couldn't do it. It's the end of the day. But I want to read a quote out of your book here on page 99. So listeners, when you buy the book, you can go here. It basically says, you know, the rule of sock, never turn your back or walk in front of any L&N. Keep, uh, keep him in your line of sight at all times. Now, what I find significant about that specific capture is that the, you don't know who the enemy is. You're thinking they're friendly. Especially A and A, um, the enemy out there—you don't know who they are. You got a range and you're shooting. You need to be behind that line. <laughs> you need to have guys on each corner of that line with rifles, and then you have to have at least three or four dudes behind that line because guess what they were doing? They were turning on us while we were teaching them and shooting us. Yeah. So again, that's in the military. Now the contractors saying the same thing. Hey man, you can't you can't trust these fuckers. But you got to make sure you keep it in line of sight. Make sure you got your peripheral run on, head on a swivel, as we always say. But there is a reason for that. You have any experience where that kind of comes to play with you guys? We had that uh, problem with the, the Taliban uh, infiltrated a gunner into one of the teams. This local, he was from uh, the Logar province. And we were always doing runs down to Shank and Gardez. So we put him on the Logar runs that we put him on the Shank Gardez runs and he, he had a cell phone and he would call his cousins or whoever hey I'm in the third grade gun truck so don't shoot at that one well so they'd light up the first two gun trucks well we caught on quick so what would happen was uh Jeff Bedford the team leader he let this guy make his phone call from like the third and he was in the third gun truck then he Stop the convoy before they left the city. 
pulled him out, searched him down, took his cell phones, put him in the first gun truck, and then they drove down there to they, they did they did sure they did the third gun truck did not get lit up, but this kid was now up in uh, was now up in the fleet gun truck getting shot at, and uh, Edward Pop tosses him his phone and says, "Yeah, now go because they just lit you up." <laughs> and, uh, sure, this shit was Kimball on the phone crying to his to somebody. Oh right. my god. And uh, they kept on doing that with him. They'd always stop any convoy he was on. He, they would stop the convoy, take his cell phone from him, put him in a different gun truck. Finally, he's like, no, nah, man, this is going to catch up to me. He quit. Yeah, I wonder why. I mean, it's, I don't, it's yeah. difficult. I know why his cousins. Well, even for us, when we took guys out, whether our tarpers, we took other LNNs with us to go do a certain mission, whatever that is, we took their cell phone. We freaked yeah. the shit out of those guys. And, you know, they were kind of like, well, look, dude, you go with me. And I made sure you were tall, top to bottom, everything in between. If I set my finger up your ass and check your ass, I was doing it. Because that we found, like you guys did, that some of those LNNs, they were bought out by the Taliban. Now, just kind of so the listeners to understand, Iraq kind of dimmed down around eight, nine, ten time frame. The reason was we killed all the dumb shits in Iraq. All the smart shits went to Afghanistan. Yeah, and that's when they stood the fight. We, I mean, bottom line is how it worked. Kicked everybody's ass in Iraq. That was a dumb fuckers. The guy, the smart dudes, went to Afghanistan and came in numbers because they used Iraq as a uh, kind of like a playground or playbook. What worked, what didn't work, and they went to Afghanistan and caused freaking multiple havoc. It was just well, I know a lot of guys with that. Were. In defense of the uh, the proxy shooter or or the proxy killer, they're. There are guys that they, they don't want to kill you. They're, they're technically, they're not the enemy. But when the Taliban kidnaps their family members and they, they beat them and they, they threaten to kill them and, and, and uh, you know, they're doing it out of loyalty to their family as opposed to technically the sworn enemy of America, so to speak. But, you know, I have to kind of feel for them because now they're put in this situation where, yeah, this wouldn't happen if I wasn't working for these guys. But, uh, you know, the Taliban... Uh, leverage that through through extortion and and so a lot of times these guys they don't want to they don't want to be shooters they're they're not warriors they're not out there you know uh but they're they're the kind of like the unseen enemy because they've already been cleared they've already been vetted they're working there they know the inner workings of a compound uh you know who's coming who's going what time things are going on and uh and sometimes it, it's it's not just proxy shooting it's it's intel you know and, and so they they keep these guys around for a while, and then when they get done using them, they say, okay, listen, if you don't kill as many people as possible, we're going to go ahead and light up your family, that type of a thing. And it's like, that's how that's how it happens, and it happens a lot in Afghanistan. It didn't happen to us quite quite as often, but we knew about it. And we had incidences that that uh, that were uh, warning signs for us. You talked about frisking somebody to take their cell phone off. We had to search these vehicles, too. These guys would come up with innovative places to stash. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if a driver had a cell phone up his ass. Yeah. Because uh, no matter how many times we searched, they still had drugs. They still had cell phones. They still had cars. You know, it was just, it's almost impossible to do that. So that's one of the things that we do is we keep them separate. When it came to OPSEC, we did our own details, our own briefs. And if we talked to the team, then we'd mix it up. We'd leave at a different time. We'd leave out of a different cape. We'd take a different route. We would never tell anybody. We'd just go. And the only person that knew that was a team leader. Right. And so. This, 
Well, you get it's the way it had to be. You can't, in theater, regardless of where you're at, any conflict, you, you can't divulge the information to your carry-on. If your team or your platoon or your, you know, uh, how you work in it, it's to make sure you're your boys. Because we know we're trustworthy. We're there doing the same thing, thing trying to save each other's lives and not get killed. But you bring in L and O, you know, L and in, local nationals, uh, and to be part of your team if you're doing a, a leader's recon or you're going to go set up a five or do a sniper uh, hide, you're not going to tell them what's going on because you know for a flying fact because of this, you don't know if the Taliban or, or the insurgents got that family and are basically out there drilling them so they're getting information from us talking over here and they're telling them. I mean, you got to be honest. If it was my family, you're fucking right. I'd be telling shit on you guys. Or I'd be telling them whatever the hell they wanted. You better pay me for it. Goddamn right. Because I'm not losing my family. And that's to me, we put those countries, those individuals that weren't part of the fight in such jeopardy the entire time we were over there. And I can talk from personal experience. Some of the people we had in Iraq were phenomenal. I mean, we had two Terps that telling you right now there's one term but it wasn't for that term we'd have quite a few guys for third recon battalion to be dead right now but you get once in a while you get those guys but then again you get this cast that you drive down the road you should be miami and all of a sudden we're in a gunfight like there's nothing out here no one knows what's going on out here so yeah uh, it it's hard now what i want to do and if it gets too much you tell me to shut up and i'll, I'll go fucking color somewhere but what i want to talk about is your chapter of exville and the reason i want to bring this up is that during that chapter, seeing it, what you guys, what happened to you, and then the lack of support that you did get. To have to go out there and be able to sustain the way you did, and I want both of you to you know, chime in on this, sustain the way you did through that entire engagement and not having your uh, your dust off or medevac, whatever you want to call it, or not having a person really getting air support or a predator or something over to kind of help you out. You guys remember what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I wasn't blocked <laughs> on that. That was uh, that was Buddha that was on that. Oh, that's yeah, that was Buddha. That was the clock on that. I know a lot about it because you know we we talked about it in detail. But uh, yeah, I'll let Ed tell that story. Yeah, I'll let Ed. But do when I run to Organi and then to Skin, what happened though on the way to Organi was we uh, hit that IED. My lead vehicle hit the IED with with Scott Brown in it, and it uh, killed the uh, interpreter instantly. Blew him out of the vehicle. We already talked about that. And then as we're running up towards the vehicle, me and uh, Buddha, Scott Brown, uh, gets out of the vehicle. He had no body armor on because the blast just ripped. He, he didn't have wraparound. He just had on a uh, plate. And it just blew off his uh, chest plate. So he grabbed his uh, AK and he ran up the hill. Mind you, he still has that broken back and those two fractures in his pelvis. Right. So uh, we get in a, and during this time, as we're run, I'm on the phone to the talk, uh, to uh, the talk, and I'm saying, hey, activate uh, the medevac plan. I've got a vehicle down. I've got men down. And what happened was it never happened because of a right. corporate, uh, something at the corporate level. They didn't sign the right paperwork and commit the funds. We were never going to get that helicopter to come in here and get the casualties out. I didn't know that at the time, but what I did know was I had to get off. We had to get off the X. Right. So after I dropped uh, Scott off at the bumper and uh, uh, Buddha uh, starts taking care of him, uh, we get the. Uh, I look at the GPS. We're closer to Organi than we were to Sharona. So now we have to stay. 
pushed to Organi, but now we're staying in the riverbed now to stay off the road because we didn't know if we we're going to hit another IED. Right. No, we're, we're we're rock hopping, and every time that vehicle's going back and forth, Scott's screaming in pain. Um, <clears throat> and he had about ten. He had uh, Buddha told me he gave him the max amount allowable of uh, morphine. Morphine. Yeah. Ten milligrams. And I got ten milligrams. Yeah, anything more than that, he he would have stopped breathing. So now we're pushing out, and you know, yeah, it is a lonely feeling there. You're like, "Fuck, man, we're on our own now." I'm calling up the client, and uh, they would not come into that valley. They would not launch their QRF into that valley. I'm like, "Chief, man." Well, did they release him to 800 meters outside the the front gate of that door? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A hard fall. Yeah, yeah. So my, we're, we're in a stream bed this whole time, rock hopping, and then uh, we come to an area where there's like uh, where there's a traffic jam of oncoming traffic, and my uh, my new uh, team leader of the uh, gunners, he's like, stop, stop, and then uh, so we stop. He and I get out of the vehicle and we're looking. I mean, you can see like it, it didn't look right. There were wires sticking out of the ground, and people were avoiding it. We're like. That's where there's an IED. So right. I, I go, all right, we're going to go this way where the, where all the civilian traffic's going. So we just had to wait till it thinned out. We made our move. We got through there. Yeah, but yeah, it, yeah, it was a shitty feeling knowing that because of paperwork wasn't signed, whew, those guys had to suffer more. Well, that's the point I bring that whole thing up with your exfil chapter is that government contracting is a different world than being in the military in that conflict. You know, I, before I leave the wire, I either have route clearance with me. I already have my dust off plan done, so I know exactly if shit goes bad. Post air support if I need it. Is there any predators going to be in the air? We have all that locked on. Yeah. So when I get into, you know, I'm in route or I'm getting to my fob, I know this stuff's in route. But for contractors, again, if you don't, the right paper's not signed to get the right approval for this company, this is a civilian company, to get this type of support. It's, it's just, Why? You're in that theater doing the same thing we're doing. You're just getting paid more goddamn money. That's it. Yeah. The only difference you think about it. Well, yeah, that's yeah. a lot less work. Yeah, and I think, too, the, the U.S. companies that were over there, yeah, there were some Australian companies and brick companies, other stuff. But the U.S. companies, because of our relationship that we had, because you ran to somebody, whether it was Iraq or Afghanistan, that you can tell me, is that you knew somebody in that theater from your time in the Marine Corps. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a good point of making, yeah. I remember uh, we were working with DGI up in uh, Herat, and uh, Frank Mercer, Derek Durbin were up there at uh, Camp uh, Milan. Yeah, it, it, I was. I ran into them, and boom! And I mean, I'm 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 like the go between between DGI because they were posting uh, some clients because they were trying to stimulate the economy. That was their whole thing. Right. With other means like growing saffron or growing something else or not poppy. And uh and and stimulate the trade. And that was their whole big thing. And and I was able to get these guys, the DGI guys in with uh the Marsoc guys up there, and they were able to coordinate uh support for the uh for their venues and their events while they were up there in Harat. Using um block and and I guess uh from what I understand, both sides both both parties loved it. They both benefited from it. So 
We did, we did too in Iraq. I mean, Ed Lynch, you obviously remember Ed Lynch. Yeah. So Merle Lynch, you know, came into my, my CP when I was the ops chief third. They were looking for certain things and they said, hey, what can we do? All we did is went to the RCT said, look it, we're going to bring these guys under our umbrella for this particular op, obviously. And we're going to share intel. I'll tell you what, for the next three months or four months we were out there because we were jumping and doing other stuff. That was probably the best link up because we knew those guys but we were able to help them support with our predators. Uh, if we were on, we were to leave, they were trying to leave behind us or in front of us prior to the route players or getting the route players. So it was kind of, it was nice because we all know these guys. We've been on float with them. We drank beer with them. Yeah. We broke bread together. It's just a great feeling knowing your guys are out there. But for me, the hard part was they weren't getting support. Like you, you know, that piece in the, the X-Gill. You think yeah. you have all the stuff that shit goes bad and you got your, your, your asses in a wit. Which yeah. brings me to the point of, you know, never leave a man behind. But obviously, you write in the book about uh, somebody that was left behind because of somebody that wasn't thinking. Somebody wasn't concerned enough to make sure that boy was going to get in a truck regardless of what happened. He was one of those types that never should have been there. I think uh, he had, uh, because Chris Vale was my buddy. And what happened was, before that, we did the uh, run to skin. And Chris, I just about those ATAs this was in July 2010 and uh I remember director telling me hey you got to go back to Shkin I was like oh fuck and I mean I mean everybody that was in the room thought I was going to quit I saw my face go white uh, I was like all right because you know remember the last time I was in there I lost two guys <laughs> so I was like all right I gotta get to Phoenix do some coordination so I get over to Camp Phoenix Call down to Sharona because I knew they had the route clearance team there. And I was talking to the lieutenant, the platoon commander of the route clearance. It just so happens they were clearing that route right at the same time we were going to be coming into in and out of the valley. I was like, all right. So we're setting up, uh, I'm giving them, we're, we're setting up phone numbers off of the Nokia's and everything else. And day of the mission, I roll in there by pure luck. There's this one lieutenant sitting out there. I was like, we stopped the convoy. I walk out to him, and I was like, hey, I, I'm a lieutenant. Uh, I forget his name. I was like, sir, I'm Ed Ford. We spoke on the we spoke on the uh, secure net, on the stew, as a matter of fact. Yeah, the stew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're, we're shaking hands, and uh, we're chatting for a few minutes. And he's like, you know what? I got the Apaches upstairs, too. They're going to keep an eye on you guys. And I was like, oh, yes. Thank <laughs> Again, it comes down to, you know, you know, this whole yeah. thing, you know, let's take the, and I'm not supposed to talk, but let's take politics out of this shit. Take it away. Yourself and, and Al and myself, if we're in a theater and we meet up, guess what we're going to do? Help each yeah. other so we all survive. So when we come back, you know, in a year or two, we're sitting there drinking a beer at some local tavern or a reunion, and we're kind of just talking about these are stories. You know, the thing about this book, what's great about it, it's a big story from your tour that you two know each other from the time of 2004, correct? Up till you yeah. finished the book. So, I mean, the, the amount of years that are involved in this book alone, it's just a memory for you. And the reason I say that is that your item that you have, you know, you, I, I'm going to call it a demon box because it's something like what I have. It just reminds you of what your life was prior to today. It reminds you what you did for a living. You're like, you two now are very successful still within your communities. I mean, Chris Al, you're you're a paramedic, uh, firefighter. I mean, 
and you're still running Mach 9, and you're an old buffer too. I thought I was old, <laughs> but you're older than nine. I didn't realize that how how old you were. But at, at the end of the day, is that that's what keeps you going. That's where if something's going bad, you know, when you lose somebody downrange, you lose a good friend in a firefight. You don't have time to mourn right there. You don't. Your job is now to get off that goddamn max, make sure everybody's safe, consolidate, disseminate, and go. Move. We gotta go. And that's when everything gets bad. That's when the point we talk about all the time about suicide awareness. For me, it was tough because I'm a senior guy. And as these kids were being uh, were being killed on our run, hey, uh, who do I talk to? Who do I go mourn with? Yeah. So like yourself, you we take an item and put it in that item I'm talking about. In order to figure out, folks, I'm not going to tell you unless you buy this book, period, is that it allows you in the future, if things are bad, you can open that piece up, that item up, and go, you know what? This is a memory. Not a good one, but it's a memory that I need to cherish. And I'm sure, too, if you get, I mean, you get two, even now, get bad out. You got, in other words, if six, you're right, you know, you have bad days. Who do you talk to when you have bad days? Just somebody in the fire department you can relate to or relates to you? Or so like that, or you and Ed get on the phone and shit chat. He, he, him, or Mike Hardy would be the first person I called if I was having an issue. I mean, there's guys that I go to in the fire department, and then of course we have that traditional critical incident stress management mechanism that's available. But you know, I'm not, I'm never gonna uh, end up using those services. Uh, you know, writing a book was therapeutic for both of us. I think. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. But you know, we always had a. Every mission always had a submission. Uh, I used this analogy uh, previously in another podcast, but I'll go ahead and repeat it now. Uh, it, it's when a stone hits the water, it, it leaves a ripple effect. When we lost guys, it was a fucking tsunami. It wasn't a ripple. It's in it, the book too. Yeah, that, and, that and that's, that's why I said it is because it's one thing to have to grieve for a guy. It's another thing to withhold that grief, uh, you know, to accomplish the task at hand. And uh, it, it's kind of, it, it's a little bit more, you know, it's worse because you're sitting there holding it back because uh, you got this other job to do and it gets compounded. It gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And, and how are you going to, how are you going to deal with that? You know, we've already, we've lost a couple of guys post, post uh, contract uh, that, that had issues. And, uh, you know, did they reach, they, you know, we talked to them, but we weren't picking up on these cues, you know, uh, garbled uh, text messages or fractured text messages and uh run on sentences and uh just repetitive words and, and it was like slurred speech writing and it's, hey man is everything okay and that's the worst question you can ask somebody because they're going to deny it but oh, I was yeah. thinking, i'm fine and then yeah. you, later you find out that they're gone and you you start wondering about whether or not you could have done something different and so now we're beating the shit out of ourselves trying to figure out god dang man why didn't the guy reach out well, I reach out, and if you're that kind of person, you're not going to suffer from this shit. If I got an issue, I call Ed. If Ed's got an issue, he calls me. Mike's got an issue, he calls, you know, any number of us. It's like that that the uh, that clusterfuck of phone calls. You know what I'm saying? We might have ten guys with shit going on at the same time, and everybody's trying to call everybody else, and, and nobody's getting through. But uh, you know, it's it's that's how we deal with it. Yeah, what's funny you say that is that, that the unfortunate part is uh, I don't know if you remember Steve O'Hara, uh, Ed. Uh, he was a recon guy, force right. Yeah, Steve O'Hara. Uh, he was a second recon battalion. I think he went to second force, but he was in a recon community. Uh, he yeah. just passed passed of cancer and uh, Thanksgiving Day. So oh, wow. since that day till present, 
between the phone calls I get, the text messages I get, I get probably 12 a day coordinating. And that's what these guys are doing, coordinating to go to his his funeral and viewing and setting up a separate uh, event during the time they're there to bring everybody together so we can kind of sit down. And, but the therapeutic part of this whole thing, especially books like this, is that it gives you that flashback, but you realize that, hey, you're not the only person out there who's got this issue. Yeah. You no. Know? And I'm sure, you know, between the two of you, you, when we talk to people, I know I do, is that, look, you're not alone out there. Today could be the worst day of your life, you think, but you saw it tomorrow. You can't change yesterday because yesterday's done. Yep. You can do what you can today to affect what you can today to maybe help you be successful tomorrow. But you got to figure that out. You know, I tell everybody the vocabulary word, no. Get it out of your vocabulary. Now, I got some ridicule when I said this before, so I'm going to say it and clarify it. What I mean by no is using the word no not to work or no to the side of a problem or no for an issue. Yeah, obviously no is a, a strong word in other instances, so we'll just leave it at that so people know that where I'm coming from. But, you know, for you guys, you've been on both ends of the spectrum, military side and the contracting side. The problems or the demons are the freaking same across the board, whether you're a fucking military guy, a contractor, law enforcer, that's why I talk about the five pillars. You know, those five pillars are what makes us go around. This book is what allows guys like me to get joy about, hey, the other people have demons and how it's articulated within this book. It's, dude, it's phenomenal. Yeah, I got um, one of the best reviews I got. I don't know if Ed saw it or not, but this guy told me, he said, man, I was at a dark place and I, I got your book and I could, I could hear, smell, and taste everything you wrote. And I was, when he said that, it, it's... You know, I used to talk about I could fly, aside from doing that little uh, spiral landing into Iraq, but I could be blindfolded and land in Iraq and know I was there just by the smell of it. Afghanistan was the same thing. You know, you could smell the shit in the air type of a thing. You knew where you were. And and so this guy, for him to say that, uh, that was, I think that the way we describe things or the way that was written really helped him bring back those memories that were good for him. And yeah. I think the book was positive for him because he was there when we were there. He just wasn't a part of it, but uh, it brought back life to him, and he thanked me for it. And I, I, I have to send it to you, Ed, if you hadn't seen it. Yeah, yeah, send it to me. I haven't seen it yet. And I, I think, too, what's good about it is that there's people out there that are, I'm hoping, when they see this podcast, understand that this book is more than just to talk and, you know, relate to your own demons. This book has what it actually is like to be a contractor in a foreign country, providing the same services the military are doing, but we're under a SOF agreement and the Geneva Convention, where these guys are under contract in a foreign yep. country. Difference. They're phenomenally. They're they're well skilled. They have whatever it takes. You know, jack of all trades, master of none. That's those guys. But the loopholes, the politics behind you getting into theater. Can I get my beagles here? How do I? Where am I flying to? I'm flying to Dubai or I'm flying to Kuwait? From Kuwait, and I fly them into Iraq or Afghanistan. What am I doing? Huge difference in contract world. Because you guys got to make sure State Department gets this. How many guns? How much radio equipment? Like your radio equipment, was it in theater when you got there? Or you had to bring it with you because you're encryption. Uh, no, it was already uh, when we would get it, it would usually get shipped in. Like when the program was started to expand, SOC would ship it all in. And then uh, our comm guy, our calm guys in the talk, they would load all the crypto in the uh, 
and it was a very basic crypto, but I mean, I, I swear to God, I mean, you, you you would swear you had people listening in that shouldn't be listening in. Well, I'm uh, sure. You know. Well, it's like today, if you're going, these guys are going down range. I mean, everything's on a smartphone now. Yeah. I'm to call it this. And, you know, I have beer can antennas for SACCOM, individual SACCOM is, you know, the technology for when this whole no. thing started 2001 until present has grown expeditiously. I mean, it's, wow, it's ridiculous. The other thing I love about this book, too, if you go to the appendix, all the abbreviations that you talk about within the book, you don't understand, they're in the book. They're in the back. They have to tell you exactly what a talk is, Top Operations Center. You know, we call it ROCKS, Recon Operations Centers. You know, dedication to the, the, the men that you lost while you're there. The dedication to the Chinese female who was killed in the uh, the bombing. I mean, yeah. I think, I think the Spinnies. Yeah. No, it was... Uh, Spinney's was one bombing, and then the China Hotel was across from that. Where we yeah, Spinney's was your grocery store. Right? Yeah, Spinney's was a grocery store. Yeah, so I don't, you, that was the restaurant. You would put that in the book. I think you humanize these people. You make them, hey, they're real. There are things that these people took care of us on the side, and mentioning them in the book, I think for like the ones that pass, it, it's it's great that the I'm sure hopefully their families know, but it's just nice that you you included them as well. That's gotta suck. You know, you go to the Chinese hotel or Spinney's or some of the other, and you think you're being targeted, as you mentioned in the book. But, I mean, it, it's got to suck. Cause well, I, you know, I think Mike had a hard time with it, not because he knew her, but, uh, you know, he kind of felt, felt it was like his fault because they were targeting us when that thing got bombed. Right. You know? uh, and so it, you've got, what do you call that, survivor's guilt or, or whatever? Yeah, survivor's guilt, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and so that tore on him because, uh, you know, it would have never happened if I hadn't hooked up and, got us all that gig there and you know and i've just gone don't don't do that to yourself man um it, it, it's not just about the friendships it's just shit's gonna happen man it's 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 a bad world yeah. you know yeah and you're you're in a conflict uh, you know part of you going over there in the conflict is the possibility of not coming home or losing people that you work with that are down uh over there it's, it's yeah. part of it and i know it sucks we say this all the time we're typically we're only gonna say it it sucks but it's part of the job yeah, it's yeah, you know, right. to call uh, to probably yeah, you know, yeah. you just go. I mean, what what I would do? Hey, this is what we signed. We knew what we were getting into when we signed that contract. You know, you, that you, you use little things like that to keep going. Yeah. There was a lot of collateral damage, a lot of collateral damage, and and uh, you know, and it was interesting. Like when we're one of the chapters we had to take out of the book was post twenty twelve, and and a lot of that stuff that we wrote about uh, was classified. So we ended up having to delete something like eight chapters in the book that would have been even more interesting reading. Yeah. But, you know, uh, at Shank, there we had a mission to deliver the mail, get in and get out. But when that when that gate got breached, we we went into a, a, a rescue mode. You know, so me and a couple of guys are pulling people out of the rubble pile. We got other guys that are manning gun trucks outside the wire because the MRAPs are gone. And now we're protecting that fob. Right. You know, and it, and it's twofold. One, because we didn't want to get stuck in the fob while it was being uh, uh, mediated. We we wanted to get out of Dodge. And so if we're on the outside, they can't keep us in. Once the MRAPs show up, we can take off, that kind of a thing. But we, they, I mean, they utilized us for medical assets. They utilized us for transportation, moving bodies back and forth, you know, search and rescue. Uh, it was like, a you know, a mission on top of a mission. But, you know, we're not just going to sit back and say, okay, well, when can we leave? Or say, that's not part of my cloud strap. Yeah, yeah. 
I didn't sign up for that or but it's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I used to hear that shit when I was come to the office and like, oh hey top, such and such. I'm like, what what's not part of our contract? Well the fuck if you're going down the road with us, guess what you're doing? What we freaking do. If not, you're not going with us. Yeah. I mean, it's not part of your job. Me sitting you know, in this damn room. What's cool for us is when you have guys that know their jobs and they also have the initiative to do other things. So when you go into a fob and you drop your load, you got a team leader going to the B doc, getting Intel. You got your medic going to the battalion aid station, grabbing med kit. You got, uh, some of your, uh, uh, third country nationals going to the cafeteria, grab chow for everybody else. And then you've got even other guys that are hooking up with other guys. You know, when you talked about knowing people in theater and getting favors done, if we didn't know somebody, we introduced ourselves. Yeah. You know, we made it known. And and so, I mean, there were times when Chris Rector would give us uh, printers. We've got printers, and we would drop off these printers for the Army guys because they didn't have any way to print. And you know what? A printer turns into two stretchers. You know, I can use those on the outside of that vehicle, you know? You know, a printer turns into uh, some some IFAC kits or some med supply and stuff like that. So, yeah, we bartered. And like I said, we begged, bartered, and stole Medical supplies. I, I, I'm going to go ahead and say that I, I still. Acquire you, you, you tactically, you tactically acquire that now. That's what it was called. Yeah, that's right. Somebody said, he said, help yourself to a couple of. Well, I'm from Canada, so a couple means like thirty. <laughs> okay, you got a couple boxes or a couple? Yeah, yeah. A couple of cases. Yeah. yeah. Okay, here's a trivia question. In the book, there's a name that's this goddamn law that starts with a Y. Say it. What do you two tell me how to pronounce that name? Well, oh, no, no. I, I think uh, I'll put you on the spot because, dude, I read over that fucking thing for like 20 yes, minutes. Yes, the caca. Yes, the source. We got that tomorrow. Is he going to put a name to? I um, I think I spelled it out when Mike Hardy said, uh, yeah, you said it was something. <laughs> well, I started to spell it out. I got uh, Y-A-S-T. When I started writing here, I was like, wait a minute. I can't even spell this. And yeah. you break it down. When I guess it was, I think it was Chris or somebody was breaking his name down. I, what I find amazing, and I'm hoping that people, they, you need to go out and pick this book up. I'm telling you. I was, I mean, I have been this fired up about words <laughs> in my entire life. Because it reminded me so much of, one, my experience. But because I know you, Ed, you know, and, and now obviously Al. To the relatability that this book has for those, whether you're a contractor or you're a military uh, even just a basic civilian, if you had any, you know, involvement to this type of stuff, you'll understand this. But again, too, here's a fact. You have two individuals who put out a phenomenal book who are super humble. You know why? Because they're just that goddamn good. That's just the way it is. I mean, you, you think about it. So, like for you, Al, I mean, I think the hardest part, I would think, for you is because you're up close and personal every time somebody was wounded. Or fatally wounded because you are the doc of the team, where the other guys were lead to lay down a bit of fire or something like that to protect you and the other dude. So your first initial, you're the first one on scene to see X. It's just gotta suck because they're buddy, they're friends, they're good friends. And now your job is to patch them up, and sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah, because they're well, it, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. But I was always the kind of guy. And one of the things that I learned from Ed was you know te teaching others, and and you take what you know and you teach others, but. Uh, when I did that initially, I would just teach him, oh, yeah, this is how you do it. You slap on a base, you know, whatever not. But then when it came time to, when he realized, when he, when he brought me to, to ground zero, he said, these are the guys that are going to end up taking care of you. 
And so that's when you start teaching them the right way. You know, it's not just about here. Well, here's a bandage. It's located over here and it's used for this purpose like that. No, it's how do you put the bandage on? Use a spiral reverse. You minimize their downtime. Uh, you uh, promote healing. You do all kinds of things uh, in that nature so that you're not thinking about the bad thing. You're thinking about ways that you can make this guy better, faster, uh, you know, because it's not just the injury. There's uh, there's stuff that goes on afterwards. There's infection. There's all kinds of things that if you we just put a bandage on and said, OK, you're good to go. Uh, you know, guy be dead in a week. And so oh, I see about that. That was my thing was to to minimize their downtime. I mean, we're uh, if I'm going to have a guy that wants to thank me for saving him, it would be that I saved him from all the misery thereafter having to go through rehab and having to go through all this stuff because I minimized those, those scars or those wounds while I was in the field. So, uh, those guys that thought that way, those are the guys I like to hang with. You know? Yeah. So what type of dirt did you carry doc in your bag? I had actually wound stat. I had uh Gamcon. I had, uh, uh, cell ox. I had uh quick clot shit, man. I had it all. Now, let, riddle me this. Out of all the anticoagulants you had in your back, which one you thought was the best? Put well, Wundstadt by far because it was faster than quick clot, but there's a lot of controversy on its coagulation, not coagulation studies, but post-surgical uh, debridement uh, yeah. where it causes uh, stuff. But uh, military special forces still use it because, uh, you know, uh, Z Medical has uh, the contract with the military to provide it. So it's a big, it, you know, it's, it's like smoking a, a a Kahlua cigar versus a tobacco. You know these these branding wars that happen between two companies and try to come up with a decent stick. The same thing when it comes with hemostatic agents. You know you got all this this paper or plastic bullshit that's going on. I want it. I want the best stuff for the guys that work past this and all that other. So the thing about it was it, it came in so many different variants. There was still old quick clot that might have been expired, but it still had that vacuum seal on it. And yeah, you, the, when you open it up and if the wind's blowing, you're kind of fucked if it gets in your eyes. But uh, I carried it anyways, even though it was expired, because I knew it still worked, and I was going to... There's sometimes we'd work on bad guys. We kept yeah. back alive. People say, well, why, why'd you save him? He tried to kill you. Well, somebody in Denver needs a fucking kidney. You know, or let's... What about the intel? You know, let's gather some intel from this guy. Keep him alive so that we can find out where the enemy is, what's their strength, all that other stuff. Yeah, it, they might not be uh, at the the top of the priority but uh we still worked on them but i wasn't going to use my best shit on them i was going to use the, the you know the stuff in my i actually had another bag a shit bag <laughs> a shit bag of med supplies <laughs> so you didn't you didn't did you like Solox? the Solox uh wrap it yeah, yeah i like Solox. Solox is good it's the reason i like now i'll tell you, i quick clot burns like a motherfucker you put that you and you, you've heard of scream you put that stuff in an open wound not inspired that boy's going through the ceiling it was burned yeah, it, a quick lot initially was exothermic. It uh, it uh, heated up to about 118 degrees Fahrenheit, but it it never really cauterized the wound like no. a lot of people But that, you know, the combat gauze, which is also by quick clot, is is not like that anymore. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's body core temperature in terms of uh, uh, its acting agents or whatever not. And uh, uh, same with the uh, the chitosan or or the shellfish that that Cellox uses. You know, it's right. like. They, they work kind of hand in hand. They're, they're probably equal in terms of uh, being up there uh, in popularity and whatnot. My, my thing was the emergency bandage, you know, what, uh, wherever, you know, the Israeli dressing. They had yeah, the Israeli dressing. Yeah. From the Israeli dressing to the emergency bandage so that Arabs would buy the fucking shit. <laughs> it was a thing. 
No, it's amazing to say because uh, we use Sunglass. Uh, the reason I like Sunglass because it was easy to apply. I get a three inch or I get a one inch. But the debridement, when you got to the battle station, you know, whatever hospital was, your whatever part of the theater, the debridement was just salient solution. There was no, you have to cauterize that or dig it out like you used to have to do with Quick Clot or some of the other uh, static agents. It just, for me, it was, it was just easier. And I could carry a shitload of it. Well, what a lot of people don't know is like when Quick Clot, uh, once it forms its clot, if there's any kind of movement in that extremity, it's going to cause the clot to come dislodged, and then you have to use more quick clot. With Woundstat, you can reform that putty. You don't have to add another another pack of Woundstat. You, you know, it's yeah. it's kind of like a putty format, so it it works in, in that manner. And it's uh, you know, instead of uh, taking up to three minutes, it's more like one minute. You know, for it to, to actually yeah. work. And I've yeah. I've used it and I've seen it. So, uh, but it's hard to come by now. It's it's not as readily available. And of course. There were a lot of things, you know, Hemcon costs a shitload of money for bandage on Hemcon, and it works really well. But, you know, if we're buying med equipment out of our own pockets, you know, that, that gets to be expensive. But, you know, you do what you have to do to, to keep your team alive. And, and uh, I team, you know, I took care of them, you know, and it wasn't just an injury on the battlefield. It was either through training, it was through uh, uh, medical advice, it was through, uh, uh, you know, those headaches and stomach aches and all that other stuff. You keep you keep them going because you got gastrointestinal issues. You got people that are dealing with this. You know, you got rashes that are recurring. And, uh, you know, you medicine is a force multiplier. A lot of people don't realize that. Right. If you can keep a guy in the fight, you know, like we did with Rob Cook down in Herat. Remember, we had to bring him back under Fengrid. Yeah. We did that. He should have been flown out of that uh, fob back to uh, Kabul. But we, you know, he, he wanted to drive back to us. And so we kept the fight. And, and so you do medicine the right way, you know, uh, it, it's going to work for you. Yeah. And then too, it's just out of that, yeah, that ability to, the guys are sued knowing that I have a, I have a doc behind me that's in my team that no matter what goes wrong, and for you yourself, that you're training those cats in case you go down, that you want them to have the best training to make sure you're taken care of at the end of the day. That's just how I wasn't, I wasn't as good at it until Ed. Ed opened my eyes. I didn't. I had tunnel vision. You know what I'm saying? I was just like trying to absorb all this information, and I, I didn't know shit about. I mean, I knew about medicine, but I didn't know about sharing that information in a manner that that was going to benefit me. And when he right. said, "Hey, you're getting ready to, you're gonna you're gonna be driving this vehicle in the front. You're gonna be in the lead vehicle. You're gonna be the navigator and the dock." And I'm just going, "What? What did I do? I'm being back with some bag of marbles I stole when I was nine years old. All this bad fucking common happening to me." I said, shit. That's like going, hey, PFC, get in the front of your point right now. <laughs> yeah. And then sit back going, hey, I'm the I'm the gunny in this damn platoon, so take your ass up front, PFC, and start driving. Yeah, that's mentioned, too, in the book as well, you know, at the end of the day. But I, all I got to say is if we're getting – we've been on here pretty good for a long time, is that folks, the listeners here on the Smoke Pit, great read is called The Postcards True Hell by ed and al you can get this either on amazon or probably at bars and noble so look for it get it the best part about it is got in the back summaries where you have uh, all the acronyms and story about i'm gonna show that that's al he's a mean looking motherfucker that's what i'm saying with him if i'd have met him in person i'd be like i need a gun and a baseball bat to shoot that mean with a baseball bat that's a big boy folks you need to go out you need to buy this book because especially if you're having those days and you just want to get it picked up or you want to get out of your demon sense, this book will help you. I'm telling you right now, you know, 
I'm glad I had the ability to have the experience to read it and then bring you two on in an interview and talk about some key points I thought were key to to listeners. So, Al, before we leave, you got anything else you want to add or want to say? We talk about our brothers all the time, but, you know, they're connected to families and we stay in touch with those people. It's important for us not just to honor the guys, but to honor the families. And, you know, we, we kind of know what they're going through. We share their grief. Uh, it, it might not be a, as bad, but, uh, we, we've talked to them and they've reached out to us and they thanked us for the information and that, that we did them justice. And that was the whole purpose of the book was to, you know, uh, to pay some type of, uh, you know, like an epitaph towards them, uh, for them and, and keep them alive. Like Ed said, say their names and they'll never die. Yes. Keep them on. Yes. As well. I agree. And yourself, Mr. Ford. Yeah. Like I said, we wanted to get that story out there and, uh, I think as me and Al found out as we started putting pen to paper, it was, it was a little bit therapeutic also. We also wanted to pay tribute to our fallen, you know, the guys we lost, you know, make sure that, uh, you know, you know, they we keep saying their names. They live forever, you know. Well, like you mentioned in the book, too, and I don't mean to cut you off, is uh, Generation Kill, that book with Gal and those guys. They, they did the same thing. They basically like, hey, put it on paper because it's therapeutic. It, you know, when you lose a good friend or you lose Marines that you serve with or contractors, it sucks. It's the worst gut-wrenching feeling in the world because you know yeah. what? That's where survivor guilt comes in. We talked about early. It's, it's not survivor guilt. It's just the way you are as a human. You know, do I cry? Fucking way I cry. Especially when I watch a Brian song or something like that. But, you know, the, at the end of the day is that you have to figure out to move forward. And for me, I, I just want to thank both of you for a very intriguing book. Uh, I think it's something that I, it was relatable to myself on quite a few occasions. It kind of made me sit back and chuckle, you know, especially, it seems like every time in the book they're telling how Al's real old. He's the old guy, you know, he's the grandpa. <laughs> I'm sure at some point, Al, because you were the young guy there, it's in a sense as, as seniority, and you're kind of like, fuck. Yeah, that's true. Let me take you out back. Let me take you out back and beat your ass and then run your fucking mouth. <laughs> they, they cut themselves and you just look at them and say, hey, Rub some dirt in that, take some vitamin M, and call me in the morning. I don't know why you're shipped out. <laughs> but again, ladies and gentlemen, for the smoke pit, this is the book. It's called Postcards to Hell. If you don't have it, I highly recommend you go get it. Um, at Amazon, that's where I got mine, and I was signed by our boy there. So I got to send it to make sure uh, Ed signs it. It was a good read, very therapeutic, uh, and I have highlight stuff in here, so days are bad. I can open up it. And read them. Oh, right on. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so, brothers, thank you so much for such a great read. Hey, thanks uh, for having us. Thank you. Yeah. So, we'll, we'll we'll probably touch base in about six months to see how the book's going and, and push it out. Yeah. Uh, but again, to both of you, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate your service as servicemen's and also appreciate the service that you did in Iraq past gas as contract. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, so, with that, said, everyone, thank you so much for listening to uh, another episode of The Smoke Pit. Check us out on Pop Smoke Media. That's where everything's at. And uh, check out this book. So, Al and Ed, thank you so much. 